Hi everybody, I'm Sess Busby, editor of Flying Solo. Welcome to our weekly podcast where we step inside the minds and lives of soloists and small business owners. Radik Sally is an entrepreneur, investor and former CEO of Swiss Wellness, the Aussie success story that he shepherded to a billion dollar sale. He's also the co-founder of impact investment company Light Warrior, a director of Hawthorne AFL team and the CEO of wellness company Wanderlust. He's recently written a book, How to Build a Billion Dollar Business, On Purpose, For Profit, With Passion, and he joins us today to share a little of his journey and explain how you can make passion and purpose part of your day-to-day. Radic, thank you so much for joining me on the show today. It's great to have you with me. Such a pleasure to be here. Thank you. Excellent, excellent. Now, I'd like to touch first off on your entrepreneurial journey because it's, it seems as if you were a bit of an accidental entrepreneur in a way. Yeah, I, I, yeah, I would say that I kind of always felt that I'd do something where change would be required. Um, but yeah, defining myself as an entrepreneur from a, a, a young age wasn't the kind of the first thought. Yeah. So where did that passion for business come from originally? I think it really came from purpose and, and seeing the purpose in business and how it kind of functions, um, you know, it, it creates the kind of function that capitalism is alongside democracy. Mm. And your story is quite interesting in that um, I read you started out as an usher at you know, back in the Village Roadshow cinema days. I don't, is there still Village Roadshow cinemas or are they events now? Yeah, so they're village uh, cinemas in uh, in Victoria. So you started, was that from a, a love of film or was that just a a great casual job? I think it was a bit of both. Yeah. Uh, and also, you know, I'd, I'd been working from a pretty young, young age and, and kind of always in a job like a paper round from kind of 10, 11, 12 and then um, into other kind of odd jobs around retailers and restaurants. And so, you know, I needed to find something that complemented university life and also wanted something that was a bit of fun and cinemas uh, provided both of those things. Mm. And what were you studying at uni? I was doing, well, my parents thought I was doing a major in law um, yeah, and, and um, tr- going from an arts degree into law, but eventually that just became a major in cinema, law and politics. And how has that stood you in good stead over the years? Has it given you a bit of a, an insight into the legal wranglings that go on behind the scenes when you're putting together big deals or or it's too far removed? I, I think that there was some kind of a language adjustment that happened as a result of doing, you know, the law um, and also learning that I didn't want to be a criminal lawyer as well and, and kind of working with kind of more difficult subject matter would have been pretty challenging for me. And and then the the other side of that was in film, it kind of taught me appreciation for, uh, you know, critiquing uh, a, a, an aspect or a story, um, and that happens a lot in business, but also looking for the subtext in that, in that kind of uh, what they'd call mise-en-scene, which is a, a French term for everything that's in the scene. So the subtext in the deal negotiation would, something that you'd learn from kind of that deeper analytical 
um, craft that you gain from cinema studies and, and then politics is politics, hey? Mm. <laughs> We've all got an opinion on that. <laughs> <laughs> yep, don't we? <laughs> So from that, um, those early days as an usher, you kind of progressed through the organisation. Um, what drew you to the operation side of things? Yeah, I think for me, it really became really clear that I was getting paid to do what I saw as a university course, which is the school of life in a working business environment. So I took my job as a, a, a popcorn shoveler, a cinema cleaner, very, very seriously. And over time, I'd, I got promoted to supervisor. Um, I'd do things like stock taking, balance the books. And so I'd have to kind of learn the basics of accounting, what it took in terms of effort to get things done, um, how to sell to people, upsell to customers, and then also manage fellow uh, friends or team members in the work environment um, and, and kind of show leadership and get them to do things that they otherwise, you know, couldn't be too bothered about and were just there to earn some money alongside the university course. Mm. Uh, you mentioned purpose earlier about purpose being important to um, to your business journey. How did that fit in with your, your early roles then at, at Village Roadshow? Well, I just loved the the entertainment side. I, I used to love talking to every customer that came into the place, my favourite role would be standing at the front of a ticket box queue on a Saturday night and just greeting every person and just checking in with why they were there and why they were choosing the movie that they were choosing and, and you know, understanding what drove people to the sorts of entertainment uh, properties that we provided. And then, you know, interestingly too, the same thing at the candy bar where you, you're kind of selling them a, a proposition and then you might, you know, get a sense of what else they may like and, and you're creating a service because they may not know that you have a certain item and you provide that for them and you see the joy that that brings. So, And also, you know, at the same time, you see a lot of the challenges. You know, you, you, you have challenges come up with parking or, or people being late or, or reservation not going to plan um, for a movie uh, or, or, you know, the, the people saying it's just too expensive, the, the candy bar. And so you, you're learning to deal with challenges as you go on the fly. Mm. So was there ever a consideration that you might go into production or producing? I, I wanted to do that and um, and so yeah, it felt like the natural thing to do. But by the time I was offered a role in, in the production side of the business, because Village did production as well and still mm. to, to this day, uh, the, the, the role that I was offered was paying half the salary that I was on. So it wasn't that appealing anymore. <laughs> the, the money trumped the passion in that case. Well, I think that I just kind of, adjusted to the fact of what I really liked about what I was doing and it was managing people, managing challenges and working through them and, um, you know, making a film would or, or, or making TV would, would have similar challenges, um, you know, different aspects in terms of subject matter but similar challenges. So I quickly learned that, you know, businesses and the basics of business are pretty transferable. Mm. So, so what brought you to Swiss then? How did you go from being the cinema movie guy who's passionate about all things movies and customer service to the guy who's working in operations at Swiss? Yeah, so it was um, my father who's uh, is a professor of surgery. My mother's a medical scientist and mum would read nutrition in blood and um, prepare that 
the analysis for my father and and my father would then use that to treat his patients and make sure that his patients were as healthy as they could possibly could be to deal with whatever chronic condition that they'd been kind of dealt and and so his modality of thinking was very unique back in the 70s he was one of the first people in conventional medical circles to talk about diet causing disease and he did a whole lot of work on meditation and how that helps with um, patients and, and how they, you know, in, in, their, in their healing process and being able to deal with chronic disease um, and, and the stress of that. And so for 20 years through to the, the 90s, his work didn't get published. He was laughed at by his peers. And so, you know, that, that was my, you know, I was born in the 70s and I grew up through those kind of 20 years. And so I had a back, background of a father who's a professor uh, talking about all these, you know, unique concepts for the time, and um, lecturing me every night, and 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 also being pretty frustrated with people that that weren't listening to him. So, um, and, and and so things changed, and 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 obviously, um, Dad was a bit of a, a leader in that area. So there was a lot of relationships, and and in particular, one relationship uh, was was with the managing director of Swiss, Michael Saba, at the time. His mother had um, uh, was on HRT, um, and and she was having you know terrible side effects from that, and needed to get out of that. And he he brought his he'd heard my, about my father's methods in not just looking at you know the simple drug medicine drug, uh, conventional medical approach, but just looking at all facets of um, uh, you know opportunities to help a patient improve their health, and and so. You know, he, he, he got her off the HRT and, and, and got her on a whole lot of nutrition and, and it worked extraordinarily well for her. And so, yeah, they, they connected over that and, and Dad became a bit of a mentor and, and he would just offer um, free advice to, to Michael um, and, and Swiss on, on formulations of the two multivitamin products, the men's and the women multivitamin, um, and just out of the interest of his patients. So he could recommend something that he knew that was, you know, up to a clinical standard and it was supported by science. And, and so the, there was this great relationship there. And, and I, was, I was getting to a point where I was hitting a glass ceiling at, at Village and, and couldn't see a, a way forward from a promotion point of view. As I was a young guy, it was a publicly listed organisation and they'd already had a 30-year-old CEO two years prior to me. And so that wasn't going to happen again. So, yeah, so it just became good timing and, and I came across the Swiss, which came very naturally to me as a result of all of that background. Mm. But what were the main differences you, you saw in terms of uh, the way the companies ran? I didn't have to work uh, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, so that was <laughs> big, Friday, yeah. Friday nights, I should say. Um, and, 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 you know, the, the, um, the rhythm of the business Whilst it, there was, you know, different things like science and regulatory process and we had manufacturing at that time that I needed to get my head around, logistics and, you know, the, the, the kind of team, the working team dynamics weren't too different and, and the monitoring of key performance indicators, focus on culture um, and the communication plan and structure were all things that became pretty naturally to me after, you know, running cinemas for as, as long as I did. It, it was kind of those other intricacies that were industry uh, unique. Um, but, you know, I, the, the other side of that, I, I really enjoyed the kind of 
the selling component, the connection with retailers, the, the, the as I said, that, that, that kind of pedigree at cinema where I'd, I'd talk to every customer was something that I was really into um, as soon as I got to Swiss, was going out to retailers, listening to them, asking why competitors had more space, why they were preferred but to be recommended. And, and you just learn so much by listening and then taking action as a result of that. Hmm. Were there any answers that came back to you when you were canvassing those retailers that surprised you? I think the most um, famous one for us as an organisation was kind of the genesis of of what Swiss would become, which is an organisation that had 300 different brand ambassadors over a period of about nine, ten years. And so in 2007, we took on Ricky Ponting as our first brand ambassador. And where that idea came from was um, for the first six months of my time at Swiss, I wasn't you know, whether it was paranoia or whether it was great management um, in, in making sure that I, I, I focused on, on the soft skills and building my understanding of the business, I, I, wasn't a, I didn't get any access to financials. So I had to go and learn. I went out and learned about manufacturing, went and learned um, how, to, how to run the warehouse, every aspect of it, um, making our products uh, from a, a, a regulatory point of view and, and, and ensuring that you know, we did everything appropriately there um, through to visiting customers and spending time on the road and spending time in retail stores. And, you know, there, there's, there was a time where I'd, I'd, I'd walk in and I'd, it, there was a full wall of this brand called Centrum, um, which funnily enough, every time I went to a barbecue after a leaving Swiss, you know, I, I felt pretty flat because most people loved talking to me about movies and, you know, what was the next exciting movie topic. And, and, you know, a lot of them wouldn't want to talk about, um, you know, what we're in because they'd ask me what I was doing and I'd say, I work at Swiss. And they said, well, what, is that the embassy? And I'd say, no, 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 uh, vitamins. And they'd change the subject probably because they're worried about me asking about their, you know, have they got a urinary tract infection or, uh, <laughs> <laughs> or, yeah, or, or, or you know, any kind of PMS or, or anything else that, that could go with with the kind of usual challenges we have as humans, and but this was how mar- how most vitamins were, were marketed. So, um, so they weren't kind of lifestyle based. So, except for one brand, and you know, occasionally people would say they would take Centrum, and I'd say, why do you take that? And they'd say, because of Rob D. Costello. And so, and then in store, I would ask these retailers, why do you have a whole wall of Centrum here when we sell as much product with you guys? You know, their margin must be so much better for you. They said, no, it's not. Um, and, I, and I said, well, then what is it? They go, well, they have 52 weeks of the year on TV and they give us great point of sale. And they pointed to the Rob D. Costello poster they had with him holding a bottle in his hand. And they said it sells itself as a result of that. Um, and I said, what about Swiss? And they go, well, it, it just sells itself. And I said, oh, okay. well, that was the next step. And we had 70% retention for our, our product when people tried it. And so when you know you've got a great product, you can go and market it. So we we went and got Ricky Ponting as our first ambassador. And then from there on, we became a you know a lifestyle product that would talk about the health benefits that come with the lifestyle change. So how did you secure that first brand ambassadorship and how did you realise that um, Ricky was the, the right fit for the brand? I, I think for us it was... Kind of, I started at Rob DiCastelli. He was a sports person, and, and no slight on him. He was a very successful sports person, but you know he's a gold medalist at the Commonwealth Games, and that was on every kind of four years. And then if he was at the Olympics, it's you know every two years he'd be competing. And marathon sports isn't kind of on 
in the kind of uh, on TV regularly and, and in the public psyche like other sports. So I just said, how can we go with Rob DiCostello but better? And and so for me, the answers always lie in the marketplace and kind of this convergence of of two strategies. And Centrum had already kind of led this convergence by taking, you know, a lifestyle angle, probably from the other side of the pharmacy that I'd walk into, and, and you'd see the cosmetics area well lit up with beautiful people, well-known people, um, you know, talking about why they, they use their brand, representing the various brands there. And so this kind of clash of two industries, bringing them together creates disruption. And and so, um, you know, Ricky was kind of, was, was robbed, but better, um, because cricket is the biggest sport on TV in Australia at that time. And, and, and the captain of the Australian cricket team, you know, is one of the few sports in a, in the country that's played year round that Austra- that's represented by an Australian team that everyone's interested in, um, and so you know the captain of that team is you know, some some say is the second most important person behind the prime minister. So it just made perfect sense to to work with Ricky. We're lucky enough to have a relationship with the dietitian. Going back to our products being based on science, a lot of these people that understand nutrition understood that our multivitamin was was. You know, heads and shoulders above others. And so they were using it. We were supplying the product for the, the, the cricket team. And to sponsor the cricket team, it was, it was about 40% more expensive than just working with Ricky. And we just felt like we'd get the same result and probably have a more flexible relationship only dealing with Ricky rather than a, a whole team of an administration. Um, you know, eventually we did a cricket deal as we got much larger, but Ricky was our first partner and off we went. We knew he took the product. We knew he'd be authentic to it. And we only advertised in the cricket. So it was our version of kind of influencing in this age, day and age and personalising a message to an audience that would be highly receptive to, to purchasing the product as, as a result of hearing about, you know, what, what the, someone they admire takes. Yeah, it definitely is uh, the equivalent of influencer marketing, isn't it? Um, but uh, were, were you ever concerned that it was perhaps pushing it more towards men than women when women are kind of the the ones often going to the chemist and buying the products or going to the supermarket and stacking the trolley. Yeah, 100%. And, and so all of our competitors thought were absolutely bonkers. Uh, but the thing is that what we found is that uh, the, the male watching the cricket, which, you know, 70% of the cricket audience was male, um, was, was telling their partner to pick up... Uh, women's product when they're shopping and 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 the partner was just wrapped that the the other you know, the husband was was going to do something for their health in a lot of situations so they would jump on board and and you know get on that kind of wellness program which wasn't as fashionable as it is today um so it was a little bit different back then um now wellness is the one thing we're left with to boast about and we kind of uh, we, you know, we all talk about our wonderful diet that we're on or, or um, you know, the, the, the workout series we're doing or if we're doing a detox or we've got some aspirations um, in, in the kind of bike riding space or whatever your, your caper is, you can talk about that and do it with confidence and a smile. <clears throat> so we rode that kind of wave and that change in culture. And, and so, yeah, Ricky was our first, but, you know, the next campaign was three months later with Dancing with the Stars and I asked mum who her favourite personality on TV was and it was Sonia Kruger who was Dancing with the Stars which was the biggest lifestyle program at the time and we were the first people to advertise with the host 
of a lifestyle TV program in that show. So you can blame us for the really annoying block ads that you get with every block contestant featured in <laughs> some product in this day and age. <laughs> Thanks. Thanks a lot, Radic. <laughs> <laughs> well, on that, we did win most annoying advert on Nova with Hughes and Kate one morning. I was driving to work and they were running through all the most annoying adverts and our first advert series, our cheapest advert that we've ever shot, um, at the time was $20,000, which is actually in budget these days because of the cost of production coming down so much. Um, but anyway, it was cheap back then. Um, and, and yeah, Husey called out ours as being the most annoying after call after call about Ricky's <laughs> terrible performance in that first ad. <laughs> but it worked for you, so I was never so mind. excited. I'm just, um, <laughs> we'd, we'd got cut through. That's what it's about at that point. And so... Um, you spoke a little bit about the that change in cultural perception around wellness and fitness and it, just in general. Um, did that also change the culture of the business? Uh, I think, no, not really. I mean, we, we all, the, the culture of the business is, is important to us as, as a business plan, as, a, as the communications plan that went with it all. And those are the three non-negotiables from my point of view whenever... I'm involved in working with the business. And and so we would focus on culture and, and talk about culture and, and we, we had values that everyone remembered and would guide decision-making regularly and we would, would ensure that every area of the business would kind of section off and, and do you know, like you work through your, your KPIs, your key performance indicators and how you're performing against those in, in kind of business review um, sessions you'd be doing the same thing about culture and kind of talking to what are examples in the warehouse area in, in living by our, what we called our four P's, people, principles and passion coming before profit. And and so um, then people would talk about those and then we'd do the same thing with the sales team and it would be very different interpretations of values and what the examples were, working examples were is to live by those values to, to see outcomes. And, you know, our goal was to make people healthier and happier and it, it galvanised people and it galvanised comms and, and, and it created an environment where, you know, positive language was something we chose to use. Instead of saying things like problem, we would say things like challenge. And, you know, I don't know if you've ever been to a, a personal training session where they, they say to you, if you can imagine this, where they, they might say to you, you've got to do 10 push-ups to kick off. And you do your first two and they say you're really, really tired. You're not going to go well. And so... That's a lot of workplaces where we're not using positive, constructive language. So we would have people think about that. And, and so culture was really king and the real secret of our success. How much do you think uh, the values that your parents instilled in you growing up and the kind of that they're also their interest in that alternative wellness space, how much of an impact do you think that had on you going into Swiss? I, I think for me the, the whole background of the, my father getting a hard time, so that gave me a whole lot of purpose. And my mother, being from a refugee pro, uh, background, just hell-bent on making sure I made the most of the opportunities I had. Um, and, and then this kind of um, natural conversation that would happen at our dinner table. We, we basically had a pandemic every day. We talked about health. Um, that's what we talked about and I'd hear about the latest of health and what was going on in the health while we were eating something, the nutrition within it um, and, and, you know, why it was healthy and why something was unhealthy as well. Pretty unusual conversation to have on a daily basis. Mm. 
Um, so you were talking about the, the four P's of the business and um, how easy was it to actually walk that? Because it's one thing to say these are the, the principles and the purpose and the values that the business is going to live and die by, but then it's another thing to make sure that you're actually walking that talk. It's really hard. And, and so it's as hard as managing a business and it should be that hard. You should be that committed to it and have that much process and structure around it and align rewards and, and recognition in the organisation to, to culture as much as getting financial outcomes delivered as a business. So, um, so yeah, so it, it, it was something we, we worked on a lot and, and that's because we were all committed right from shareholders through to, um, you know, a team starting an induction. We would say to them, we, we would interview you, but your, first, your interview is really the first three months of the job. And, and the culture will work out whether you're the right person for this this role or not. Mm. So would you have any kind of practical strategies or advice for our listeners that, you know, that might be entrepreneurs or running a small business as to how to make sure that, that, that their passion and purpose is continuing to drive the business and that the workplace is a positive environment where everyone can contribute to growth? Yeah, I think that you've got to really think about whether you're doing what you love and 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 what you're really committed to. And if you can't say that as a leader, um, you're going to really struggle to to bring other people along for that journey. Um, and and you know, there, there no matter what the industry is, there's good things, great things about it, and then there's ordinary things, average things, and bad things. And so. You know, that, that's the same across all. And it's how you kind of approach all of those situations um, that helps define the culture. Um, and then, you know, this commitment to setting a vision, the reason why you're doing what you do, and, and making sure that it's not just part of a business plan that you might pitch to investors or to a bank to explain what you're doing or have written on the wall. It's something that you memorise. The first thing I do is when I'm pitched a, a, a values plan or culture plan, and culture plan, I should say, um, I get people to cover their eyes and say, well, tell me what the values are. Tell me what the, your aspirations for culture are. And if you can't remember them and they aren't easily memorable, like your four Ps and, you know, we, we would make people healthier and happier and we would do things like H&H days to reinforce that, you know, when that was a day off, when there wasn't a, a public holiday in a month that you could earn. And, and so it would reinforce these values, you know, at the bottom of our emails, we would sign off with rather than best or kind regards. It'd be celebrate life every day. Cled, that's the Swiss Swiss team spirit. So it would be interlaced and interface and interface into the business that kind of is fundamental to how we speak, how we make decisions, and kind of how we how we remind ourselves that culture comes first. Mm. So we've we've talked a lot about the the positive aspects of the business and the passion and the purpose. What about challenges? What were the biggest challenges you faced during your time there's in Swiss? A, there's a lot of those that jumped in pretty quickly. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, they're the best parts. You know, I should have been fired many times over. I say, I can kind of remember three biggies, but um, each time that happens, I think it's just such a great opportunity to build on a culture of openness and honesty and and fragility and authenticity and, and being human. And so as a leader, we need to call out when things go wrong and, you know, you as the leader are responsible for that and own those decisions and, and show them 
that you know you've learned from it and and that helps others do the same thing you can't expect that of others unless you're you're holding yourself with the same level of accountability so you know we need to be true um to our team true to ourselves and and life becomes a whole lot easier as a result of that mm. and you were at the helm when um swiss was was bought out for that massive massive deal i can't remember how much it was it was yeah, so the first tranche was 1.67 billion, and then I had to stay on another 18 months, and um, and that 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 end tranche valued at us 2.1 billion dollars. So it was a pretty fruitful outcome. I think when I started in 2005, the organisation was worth 15 million. Firstly, fantastic outcome with you at the helm. <laughs> Wouldn't we all like that kind of success for the business? But I, I imagine it was very hard earned, but also. Managing a deal of that magnitude must have been incredibly stressful. How, yeah, how did you handle that? Yeah, so much more yeah, vitamins. <laughs> lots of those. I think I formulated a few products to help me with the stress I was dealing with. But uh, so I think that um, the the thing that drove me uh, throughout those kind of tumultuous times of trying to close out the deal that took five years from start to finish to, to get done oh was, my God. <laughs> yeah, it was kind of coming to terms with the fact that the business was coming a whole lot bigger than, and, and kind of different to what I started in. And, and my level of competency wasn't moving with the business or, and desire, competency and desire. And so probably the last two, probably three years, I was very clear on the fact that, you know, I needed to transition out of the business. I was traveling three weeks of every month. Uh, I didn't know the name of every team member. I didn't know their story. Um, and so that, these are all things that kind of, you know, whittled away at my passion and meant that it was, you know, felt very natural to drive and, and get the deal done. I can't believe it, but I, I, we're probably out of time. <laughs> Radic, we've been chatting. I've still got so many questions for you. I might have to get you back. <laughs> Thank you, Radic. I, I really appreciate your time. Um, I would be keen to chat to you some more at a later date, though, if that's cool with you. Thank you so much. I'll speak to you again soon.